The U.S. military shoots down another high-altitude object, the fourth in a little over a week. We'll ask Congressman Jim Himes, top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, why this is happening, why now, and if there's more the U.S. should be doing about it. For Sunday, February 12th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. Also, a doctor in Syria explains the difficult choices he's forced to make as the country tries to recover from last week's earthquake. We are taking the one who has the chance for life, the one he has no chance we are leaving him. And it's Super Bowl Sunday. The city of Philadelphia is greasing up lampposts to stop rowdy fans from climbing them. Good luck with that. We hear grease in the polls. We accept that as like a challenge, right? So it's like, yeah, grease them johns up. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Another unidentified object has been shot down by U.S. forces, this time over Lake Huron in Michigan. Michigan Congresswoman Elisa Slotkin tweeted about it saying she's interested in exactly what this object was and its purpose. This makes three unidentified objects in the last three days, one over Alaska on Friday, one over Canada yesterday, and the one over Michigan today. That's in addition to the suspected Chinese spy balloon shot down last weekend. And Pierce Amy Held has more on the first two objects. Neither Ottawa nor Washington has characterized those, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says they are also believed to be balloons, though much smaller than the first. Telling ABC's This Week, such balloons are not new. Our knowledge of them is. The military and the intelligence are focused like a laser on first gathering and accumulating the information, then coming up with a comprehensive analysis of what went on before for what's going on now and what could go on in the future. House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner tells CNN they are revealing gaps in our defense. We don't really have adequate radar systems. We certainly don't have an integrated missile defense system. Turner says while much remains unknown, it is clear there is a threat. Amy Held, NPR News. One week ago, multiple earthquakes rattled Turkey and Syria, killing more than 33,000 people and leaving hundreds of thousands more displaced. Empire's Ruth Sherlock has more from the Turkish town of Zlahia. Tonight at three in the morning will mark a week after this earthquake and still families are gathered around the debris of destroyed buildings, watching, waiting hoping to recover their loved ones. In this town, there's deep sadness over the relatives they've lost and also fear for the future. Most of the buildings in Islahia have become uninhabitable. People don't know where they're going to live. And this region has been hard hit. The economy will be devastated. People don't know if they still have their jobs, as well as having to deal with having lost loved ones in the most awful of ways. Residents here don't know what the future holds for them. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reporting. Meanwhile, a senior official from the World Health Organization says the risk of infectious diseases and a secondary crisis continues to grow in northern Syria as a result of those earthquakes. Richard Brennan says many tend to look only at the number of dead or injured from the actual quake itself and not the broader crisis these kind of events trigger. The local communities are doing their absolute best to meet the needs. But they have been overwhelmed. There's overcrowding. There's poor sanitation. Meanwhile, Turkey's justice minister says 131 people are being investigated for their part in the construction of those buildings that failed to withstand the earthquakes. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Faced with what it calls insurmountable financial pressures, the Board of Trustees for St. Joseph Prep Boston is closing the 137-year-old Catholic school. The private high school in Brighton will close at the end of the school year. The board also said St. Joseph Prep is confronting demographic shifts among middle and high school-aged children. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley warns an upcoming ruling by a federal judge in Texas could limit access to abortion for people across the country. The court is considering a challenge to the Food and Drug Administration's decades-old approval of the abortion drug mifepristone. Presley told MSNBC today that a ban on abortion pills would be a blow to abortion rights nationally. Like all things, uh, whenever there are bans on our bodies or draconian uh, legislative uh, efforts or attacks by the courts, those that suffer the most are the most marginalized. A decision is expected later this month. Well, this is the first Super Bowl that people in Massachusetts can legally bet on. Gamblers can place wages on the game at the state's three casinos. Massachusetts Gaming Commission Chair Kathy Judd-Stein says the casinos have advisors to explain how sports betting works and provide information to prevent problem gambling. They are available to answer questions as simple as directions to the nearest kiosk, as well as giving really important information about how to make healthy choices around gambling. Advisors can give tips on how to limit spending and time inside casinos. A Navy pilot who grew up in Waltham has a major role in the Super Bowl's opening ceremony. Lieutenant Jacqueline Drew will be part of an all-women flyover during the national anthem. It's to celebrate 50 years of women serving as Navy pilots. Super Bowl 57 between Kansas City and Philadelphia kicks off at about 6.30. This afternoon at the TD Garden, the Celtics beat Memphis by a score of 119-109. to In the forecast, clouds mid-30s overnight, mostly cloudy, a chance of rain tomorrow with temperatures in the 40s. WBUR supporters include the George Gund Foundation working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. By now, you've likely heard that that series of earthquakes last Monday has caused massive loss of life in Syria and in Turkey. The latest estimate is some 33,000 deaths in both countries, and that number doesn't include those with injuries, physical and emotional, who now have to recover in cities and towns that have been severely damaged or destroyed. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from someone who was rescued from an earthquake years ago. She's going to tell us what that was like. But first, we're going to hear from someone who's trying to care for survivors right now in Syria, where a years-long civil war has made it even more difficult to get the kind of help and materials needed in a natural disaster of this kind. Dr. Mohammed al-Abrash is a surgeon at Idlib Central Hospital, which is run by the Syrian American Medical Society. That's a relief organization that's been providing medical assistance in Syria over the course of the civil war there. He practices in Idlib and was on duty at the hospital when the earthquake struck. Immediately, the white helmets start to bring the injured people to us. And our resources in the hospital, because of the war before, and we are since 10 years or more than 12 years now in the war, and we used to deal with these injuries before. But actually, in this earthquake, the injury is different type, because it is because of the rubble, and they have 
different types of injury which is not used to be seen like the uh, injury of the war. You've been taking care of people who've been in a conflict zone for some time. But then when these new injuries yeah. start to come in, what is there something you can tell us about what you noticed that was different or what was that like? Many patients had head fracture, bleeding in the brain, and all they need immediate intervention. And really, uh, it is too huge for us to deal with this patient. Can I ask you, Dr. Alaprash, can you go home? You've been there for a week now. My family is staying in Turkey, and I am working in Syria. I am crossing the border each week, one week, uh, one day. But uh, since the earthquake, I cannot go to Turkey because my home is a crack. Nobody can go to the home. My wife went to her sister in Mersin. One of my son went to Istanbul. I have three children, each one in uh, one city, to mm-hmm. Bursa, other one in Bursa. So I cannot meet my family now. Even I will go to Turkey, I have no home to stay. I'm very sorry to hear this. And, and what about the other people working at the hospital? Can they go home or are they in the same situation that you're in? Some, they are in, my, in the same situation. And uh, unfortunately, also, we lost one of our colleagues. He is a doctor his wife and two children, till now they are under the rubble. No, they they cannot reach their building to take the rocks from there. Mm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, Mm. really. We have many, many uh, colleagues, one of OR technician, he lost his, he was on duty with me on that time. And he lost his wife and two children or three children. Oh, I'm so sorry. So in addition to, to trying to care for people, you're dealing with your own grief. Yes. Is, is there something that you would most wish the people outside of your area to know about not just what you're, what you're dealing with now and what you have been dealing with for years? Yeah. Actually, now, after the earthquake, most of the people, they lost their houses, now became homeless. And many, they are staying on the street, under the tree. Those people, they need help. They need uh, shelter. They need to rebuild their houses. And really, it's a big issue. It will take time, long time to uh, uh, solve these problems, actually. And this one also needs. And they will have uh, now, they will have diseases, different diseases. And the weather here is bad now. It is cold already. And really something terrible. We need the help from the United Nations to to stabilize Syria, not only in our area. Also, we need to solve this civil war also. Civil war also makes us in trouble. Really, we we need to to live in peace, but till now, nobody is trying to interfere and uh, solve this uh, civil war in Syria. That's Dr. Mohammed Al-Abrash. He is a surgeon at Idlib Central Hospital. It's run by the Syrian American Medical Society. He's in the Idlib area in Syria, and he's talking to us about the very difficult conditions there. Uh, Dr. Mohammed Al-Abrash, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for speaking with us today, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you.
Back in Turkey, a week after the earthquake, some are starting to assign blame for why some of those structures collapsed in the first place. And officials are detaining some people who they say were involved in the construction of those buildings. NPR's Peter Kenyon is with us now from Istanbul. Peter, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Michelle. So tell us a little bit about where you've been the last few days. And if you just tell us a little bit about what you saw, like the scale of the destruction that you saw? Well, I was in Adana. It's a city on the western side of the earthquake zone. And parts of the city are still in pretty good shape. But there are areas where the earthquake did just as much damage as it did elsewhere. And you see big piles of rubble, trapped bodies, like we've been seeing across much of southern Turkey and northern Syria. So what do we know about this investigation of people involved in the construction of these collapsed buildings? Well, this is a pretty new development, and it's still in the very early stages. Uh, But it looks like Turkish prosecutors have been given the green light to go after people suspected of having played a role in what critics call the long-running practice of evading building codes, uh, designed specifically to make buildings more earthquake-resistant. Now, this isn't really new in Turkey. It's been a lot of complaints about things like this in the numerous earthquakes over the past decades. Uh, But... This is a little bit different. I mean, this time, unlike in the aftermath of past quakes, Turkey's justice officials may actually be prepared to hold to account those found to have had a role in the construction of these substandard buildings. Uh, That, of course, remains to be seen. Are there specific laws that they're accused of violating? Yes, yes, uh, quite a few, actually. I mean, Turkey's justice minister uh, says those under investigation are suspected of violating construction codes put in place following the 1999 earthquake near Istanbul. That one killed some 17,000 people. And as you noted at the top, this quake's death toll is already far higher than that. Uh, And I'm hearing stories resurfacing about uh, practices such as so-called construction amnesties. Uh, They began decades ago, but continued until just a few years ago. And these are basically uh, moves that allow contractors to cut corners, and critics say that has left buildings more vulnerable to earthquakes. Now, my NPR colleagues have been hearing that some builders had uh, certain moves, such as concealing extra stories, maybe building them below ground, or other tricks. Uh, Here's a real estate broker. His name is Sonmez. He's from Islahia. Here's what he had to say. Now, he's saying the builder gets permission to build four stories, but he builds eight, and he gets people in there very quickly, and the result is it's harder for the state to do too much about it. Uh, Now, though, things seem to be different. We're hearing reports of contractors being arrested at the Istanbul airport, reportedly attempting to flee the country. So, Peter, before we let you go, we've been hearing stories all week about rescue efforts. As we said, it's, it's been a week now. Are they still looking for survivors? They are. Uh, And while the numbers have dropped off since the first few days, crews are still finding people alive. In the Turkish city of Antakya, a Syrian man was pulled to safety after 156 hours under the rubble. Uh, The city of Hattai released videos showing rescues of a father and daughter and a 10-year-old girl. Now, on the other hand, we're hearing that the Israeli rescue team has suddenly decided to leave Turkey after receiving intelligence that a threat to their safety could be imminent. That is NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you. Over the past few days, we've seen dramatic footage of survivors being pulled from the flattened buildings in Turkey and Syria. It seems impossible that anyone could survive something like that. But more than a decade ago, Chesley Mezador did. She was a college student in Haiti. January 12, 2010, started out as a typical normal day, and I was getting ready to go to the university. (laughs) Little did we know that they would change our lives forever. 
I remember sitting down, taking the exam, and I, we started feeling the, the room shaking. And as we got up to run to the door from the second floor to go outside, everything went dark. When I came about, uh, I didn't know where I was, what happened, or everything was dark. All I heard was screaming all around me. The floors above her in the building where Chesley and her classmates were taking their exams came crashing down. The class we were, on, we were in collapsed so bad that all we could do was lay down flat on our backs. We could not sit down. We could not move around. We just stayed like that for 16 hours straight. And with the help of our parents, other professors and students, they were able to locate us, dig a small hole big enough to pull us out. We basically had to put both our hands up and they would pull us from our, our arms and out to out from the hole. And uh, when I got out, the first thing I saw was sunlight. Um, a lot of people in the yard, I saw cars, I saw debris, and of course I saw my mother just crying. Chesley says she tries not to think about that day, but when she sees what's happening in Syria and Turkey, she can't help it. The memories come flooding back. And talking about it today, it is getting me emotional. But um, my heart uh, with all the victims and their families, and uh, I try not to really go back to that day, but with what just happened in Turkey and Syria, it's like I was living it all over again emotionally. So what I can tell them about hope, it's to be there for one another. You don't have to go through that to feel their pain. You don't have to experience that to feel what they are going through. Yes, you will never fully understand, but at least, have some empathy, sympathy, and whatever you can do to help them. That was Chesley Mesidor sharing with us her story of surviving the 2010 Haiti earthquake. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Coming to City Space February 21st, former CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter discusses his work to increase awareness about the media and its impact on democracy. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Prepare for a successful career with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. The program exceeds state licensure requirements, and the GRE is not required. Now accepting applications for fall bgsp.edu. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The U.S. military has shot down another unmanned high-altitude object, this time over Lake Huron in Michigan. A senior administration official tells NPR it appears to be the same object detected over Montana yesterday and that they didn't assess it to be a military threat to anything on the ground. In Turkey, officials have issued more than 100 arrest warrants in connection with last week's earthquakes, accusing people of shoddy construction practice. Disaster officials 
officials in Turkey and Syria now say more than 33,000 people have died. And at the weekend box office, the third installment in the Magic Mike's series, Last Dance, took the top spot, bringing in an estimated $8 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Earlier today, we learned that the U.S. military shot down another, to this point, unidentified object discovered at high altitude, this one over Lake Huron. It's the third one observed and then shot down over North America since Friday, with one over Alaska and another over Canada. U.S. officials have not confirmed the origin or nature of any of these things, but this all happened while U.S. officials are still analyzing whatever was in that balloon that the Chinese acknowledged was theirs, that the U.S shot down last week over the Atlantic. So why are all these objects seemingly popping up all over the place and why now? We can't be the only one with questions, so we called Congressman Jim Himes, who hopefully has some answers. He's the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee and one of the so-called Gang of Eight. Those are the congressional leaders from both parties who are briefed first on intelligence and national security matters. Congressman Himes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us any more about these objects that were shot down over Alaska and Canada? Well, I can't tell you a whole lot more, but I, I think I can give you and hopefully lots of people a way to think about it. Um, I am very confident that none of these objects represent a threat to the national security of the United States to its people. Um, I'm confident that they are very unlikely to have the kinds of surveillance capabilities that the Chinese balloon that was shot down had. And the reason I say that would, would is that if if they were a threat, if they were a military uh, action, um, if they had dangerous capabilities, I'm quite certain I would have been briefed on that. Now, my theory is, and this is where it gets pretty speculative, but it's informed speculation, um, I'm thinking back last year to when we had the hearings on uh, what we're supposed to call uh, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, as most people call them UFOs. And what I learned in that hearing is that there's an immense amount of garbage up there, all kinds of balloons. Um, you don't have to be a nation state to launch a balloon. You know, there are folks launching weather balloons, Wi-Fi balloons, you name it. And now we're just particularly sensitized to it, and we also happen to have a lot of our military radars and that sort of thing doing something that they're not used to doing, which is looking for balloons. So I think because we're really looking hard, we're seeing a lot of this garbage, and when, it incurs, when, it, when there's an incursion into civil aviation space, I think at that point the authorities say, boy, we better do something about this. And you call this garbage. Why do you say that? Why do you call it garbage? Well, that is, you're, you're right to point out that that's imprecise language. Um, I guess I say that because um, if somebody's operating a weather balloon, 
um, they would presumably let the FAA know about it. And I call it garbage simply because some of these balloons, by the way, can last in the atmosphere for months. This is not sort of a party balloon. And so when I say garbage, I mean it could be just residual uh, experiments that were done by anyone, frankly. I mean, uh, you don't necessarily need to be in the area to put a balloon into the stratosphere and have it drift over North America. But you're, but you're right in saying that, that they might actually be active Wi-Fi balloons. They might actually be active weather balloons. But I come back to what I said at the start, which is I'm relatively sure that they're not a threat in any way to the people of the United States or to our national security. So, so a couple things. Let me, just, let me just see if I understand you. I think what I hear you saying is that we are seeing these objects now because there's more stuff up there. And also we're seeing these things now because we're looking for them. Is that right? That, that, that's correct. You know, our, our sensors, what, do we, what have we worried about over the course of our lifetimes? We've worried about missiles coming over the pole from, uh, from Russia back in the old Soviet days. Uh, we, post 9-11, we worried about unidentified aircraft um, coming in, perhaps laden with explosives or whatever. Um, none of our technology is particularly um, uh, focused on predicting something that's drifting along at 30 miles an hour at 50,000 feet. Now it is. And as a consequence, I think we're seeing a lot of things that were there before, okay. but that we just didn't see before. So the Department of Defense says that they shot down these latest two objects, and we haven't yet heard from them about this third one, out of an abundance of caution. Do you think that was the right thing to do? Well, um, I do. And again, my suspicions are that they shot them down for precisely the reason they said they did, which is that they represented a risk to civil aviation. And when you get down below 40,000 feet, that is true. All of us have had the experience of being on a plane and being told that we're now at cruising altitude of 32,000 feet or whatever. Um, what I do worry about is, and, and again, we need to know what these things are. I think it's going to turn out to be a lot less that meets the eye. But a military mission to shoot down a balloon is a very, very expensive thing. And now we've got teams in the Arctic and teams in Canada trying to recover these things. We can't make it the policy of the United States, I think, in the long run, if I'm right, and these are, you know, errant weather balloons to, you know, deploy the military to take down these balloons every time we find them. So we need to think a little bit harder about that. Well, that was going to be my question is, does that suggest that there needs to be some sort of framework for allowing these things to be uh, sent up, you know, into the air. I mean, as again, these are high altitude items. I mean, these are things that people don't generally just kind of buy at Best Buy or whatever. But, but do you does this suggest that there's some sort of regulatory framework is needed? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, again, I think we sort of need to root ourselves in reality. Um, I I certainly can't remember, and and I would wager that there hasn't been an airliner downed, a civil you know mm -hmm. civilian aircraft downed by a weather balloon um, or some other form of balloon. So we need to sort of evaluate what the risks really are. I think when we're all attuned to to balloons and being slightly frightened by balloons, I think as the you know government has said out of an abundance of caution. But you're absolutely right. Look, if this is if this is going to be a thing, I think we're going to need to do more to have the owners of balloons, you know, whatever it may be, tell us that they're up there, tell us what the tracks are, and by the way, have some way of controlling them and taking them down when they're no longer useful for their for their particular purpose. Congressman, sadly, we only have thirty seconds left, but I am I am interested in knowing whether you know any more about the balloon that we. Do do know the Chinese uh, that did belong to the Chinese. They've acknowledged that it, it is that it is theirs, but they don't. We don't. We don't see eye to eye about what it is. Do we know any more about that? Um, we we do know a lot more. We've recovered a lot of it. Um, much of the question that you're asking won't be easily answered, um, you know, in public because this is pretty sensitive stuff. But we have recovered much of it, um, and I do think that we're going to learn an awful lot about Chinese capabilities as a result of having that uh, technology. That is Congressman Jim Himes. He's the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. That means he's the top Democrat on the committee. He represents Connecticut. Congressman Himes, thanks so much for sharing this time with us. Thanks very much.
Nobody likes being pulled over by the police. It can be intimidating under the best of circumstances and under the worst, as we've seen all too often, it can lead to deadly outcomes, most recently in the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. So imagine how infuriating it would be to learn that traffic stops in your community might be being made not just for reasons of public safety, but to raise money, or even worse, as a kind of competition. That's the allegation in a new report from the Baltimore Banner, a nonprofit news organization dedicated to local news in Maryland. Leaked internal documents, which were published in the Banner, showed Maryland State Police supervisors discussing a points-based system to evaluate the performance of troopers in one part of the state, suggesting that troopers who didn't measure up might be subject to quote-unquote corrective action, but that troopers who did well might get a new car. That despite the fact that ticket and arrest quotas have been banned in the state for more than 15 years. Baltimore Banner reporter Ben Konark broke the story and is with us now to tell us more. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your story is based on leaked documents that show email conversations between state police supervisors communicating about a range of topics, including what they call, quote, unquote, low-performing troopers, those with the lowest amount of traffic citations, and describing how to reward troopers outperforming their colleagues and issuing tickets. Now, I just want to say at this point that these documents have been verified as authentic. The state police have verified that these were communications that they actually had, and state lawmakers have now had a chance to look at these. What do you think they say? Well, you know, what we published so far is one memo and one email. The memo lays out in pretty explicit detail exactly how many traffic stops, how many citations, how many DUI arrests every trooper is supposed to make per month. The expectations fall under different categories. You can either meet the expectations, exceed the expectations, or you can come in at needs improvement or unsatisfactory. And we're still learning more about what that means. The other document is an email. Pretty interesting. Um, You know, it basically lays out a points-based system. We've since learned more about what that points-based system is. uh, And it uses that system to basically suggest that the best-performing troopers will get a new vehicle. So we asked the Maryland State Police if this amounted to a quota for tickets and arrests. And as we pointed out earlier, this has been illegal in Maryland since 2006. And they said the following, I'll just read it. In accordance with state protocols and with Maryland State Police policy, supervisors who choose to provide troopers with performance expectations may use average figures, ranges of numbers, or approximations to assess reasonable levels of performance across a number of factors. So... Based on your reporting, and also I will say that since state lawmakers have now had a chance to review this information, right? Do I don't know if you feel comfortable hazarding whether they are breaking the law or not. Well, I'm not sure if I'm quite qualified to get into that. But what I will say is that, you know, in 2006, when the General Assembly passed this law that I, I describe it as heavily restricting law enforcement quotas, there's a current delegate currently trying to tighten that ban. And the reason is because the law that was passed in 2006 said that law enforcement quotas can't be used as like the sole basis to uh, judge someone's performance, a law enforcement officer's performance. Well, so I was going to ask you, the report, your reporting is specifically about practices taking place along Maryland's eastern shore in, you know, state police parlance, the barracks, you know, there, okay? Right. Do you have any sense or does your reporting indicate whether this incentive program was used elsewhere in the state? Yeah. So, you know, the tipster that sent these documents to the state delegate indicated that this system was being used in, quote, a few barracks on the shore. Since then, we've obtained more documents that indicate this practice is is more widespread across the state of Maryland. We've identified at least seven 
barracks that are using the expectation system in a way that looks a lot like a law enforcement quota. You know, it's interesting. I think this issue kind of surfaced in August of 2014 after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And as we all know, you know, weeks of unrest uh, surfaced after that. That wasn't a traffic stop per se. It was a police encounter. But one of the things that emerged was the sense that the public had that they were being used like an ATM machine, sure. you know, that they were being harassed in essence by police so that the police could raise money. Correct. So did the, the lawmakers you talked to, one in particular, uh, Robin Grammer, who is, I want to mention, a Republican, seemed quite upset about this. What arguments did he make about why this is so inappropriate? He feels like officers should be able to use discretion on these things and has suspicions that you know, the, the, um, this type of enforcement strategy is aimed at driving up revenue. I've heard other experts um, suggest that as well. Uh, it also could be political, right? You know, it, if you constituents say, hey, people are driving like crazy on these roads these days, which I think is a pretty common complaint since the pandemic, um, you know, you can say, well, look, I'm, I'm increasing traffic stops. My troopers are doing more. Um, it gives them something tangible to say. Yeah, it's interesting. The other thing that um, that the the dele- in your reporting, you said that the delegates, the, the whoever sent these documents to the delegate said that he was also concerned about the 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 troopers' mental health. That that the the effect on the troopers of having to conform to this. I, I, can you just say more about that? I thought I thought that was an interesting point. So did I. And, you know, I've since had an opportunity to speak with troopers directly about this, and and they agree wholeheartedly with that sentiment. The idea is that, you know, this isn't fun for troopers either, right? You know, if you pull someone over, let's say they're they're right at the legal limit for alcohol, and you feel like, okay, maybe they're not actually that intoxicated, but you have this heavy incentive to try to make this arrest. Whether the arrest sticks or not is another question. So maybe they'll fight it, you end up losing it in court, you know, I've heard that under these types of expectations, you know, when you're mandating daily traffic stops, the quality of those stops goes down. That's one concern. You know, mandating stops on a certain shift can be a concern. You can have troopers who are being told to pull over more people in the dead of night. We know that traffic stops can be very dangerous for both people who are pulled over and sometimes for law enforcement officers themselves. So I think there are different layers of concerns, but Generally speaking, I think law enforcement officers like to have some kind of discretion so they can decide whether something's worth their time or not. When you start attaching rewards and mandating a certain number of traffic stops, they feel like the quality of their work goes down. That was Ben Konark, a reporter with the Baltimore Banner. That's an online newspaper based in Baltimore, Maryland. He joined us to talk about his exclusive reporting on allegations that a Maryland state police barracks has set up a ticket and arrest quota system, which is illegal in Maryland. The state police deny this. You can find his story online. Ben Konark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I also want to mention that we also reached out to the office of Maryland Governor Wes Moore for a comment. As of right now, we haven't heard back. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
With the Eagles taking on the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl today, Philadelphia is gearing up for possible victory celebrations. A lot of cities do this, but how many have to grease the lampposts to keep ecstatic fans on the ground? NPR's Laura Benshoff reports on how Philly tries to manage fans who treat these safety precautions like a dare. With the Eagles on a winning streak, the city of Philadelphia didn't waste any time preparing for the NFC championship game a couple weeks ago. The police department will be greasing down those poles. Philadelphia police say they're planning to grease the poles. Police confirm officers are, in fact, greasing them poles. That means using paint rollers to apply biodegradable gear oil to lampposts and other structures in order to keep fans from climbing them. The city doesn't grease every pole, but the ones on Broad Street close to City Hall get lubed up. That area becomes the beating heart of victory celebrations when local sports teams win. We hear greasing the poles, we accept that as like a challenge, right? So it's like, yeah, grease them Johns up. 29-year-old Sean Hagen took a climb after the Philadelphia Phillies became league champions last fall. He says the pole was greased, but he was able to scale it using a garbage can like a step stool. In a video he took from the top, a sea of upturned faces are watching and rooting for him. I felt like Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm sitting there slamming beers, had like Broad Street cheering me on, you know. The crowd was raging. It was unforgettable. Police later arrested Hagen and collared others who took their partying to new heights that night. But a judge dismissed the charges against him. Hagen says celebrating a sports victory feels like a rare occasion for his troubled city to blow off steam. With sports, you know, brings this city together. Seems like crime stops for the day. You know, everybody's tuning in and really tuning out all the negativity. With that in mind, Philadelphia generally tries to tamp down only the most destructive forms of celebration. For the NFC Championship game, it also put up barricades to keep crowds in the street and away from many of the buildings or street signs that could be scaled. But there were still some climbers and other forms of joyful rebellion. Some shot off large-scale fireworks, which are not legal, and police mostly looked the other way as crowds of people drank in the streets. A seven-piece brass band blocked traffic to march up Broad Street. But all of this was just a prelude to this weekend's Super Bowl. But that's not in Philly. It's in Arizona. What's up, Eagles fans? I'm Grace. I'm from Delco, but I go to college in downtown Phoenix. Local college student Grace Del Pizzo made this guide on TikTok for any Philadelphians coming to the game who might be wondering, what has this city got to climb? So you're not going to have much luck climbing a palm tree as those are massive, but since we're in the desert, all the other trees are tiny. All the light poles are taken and you just want to climb a tree? They're available. She says it's no broad street, but it'll do. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Philadelphia. This is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm John Carpilio. Good evening. Thanks for being with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. Order yours by noon tomorrow for delivery on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. Cloudy skies overnight. Temps fall to the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, a slight chance of rain, 40s, and then sunshine returns 50s on Tuesday. Right now in Boston, it is 46 degrees. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, with farm-to-table sandwiches and salads available year-round. Heated greenhouse seating area now open. Menu at volantefarms.com. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Russian forces this weekend continue to shell Ukrainian cities amid a grinding push to seize more land in the eastern part of the country. One person was killed, another was wounded this morning by shelling in southeastern Ukraine. Three U.N. human rights experts are planning to conduct an official fact-finding trip in April to investigate the institutionalized police culture in the United States. This follows the deaths of Keenan Anderson and Tyree Nichols. And New Zealand's national airline canceled dozens of flights Sunday as the country braces for Cyclone Gabrielle. Air New Zealand says it's canceling all domestic flights in Auckland through midday Tuesday, along with many international flights. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. In 2015, three teenage girls disappeared from their homes in London. Their goal, to join the terrorist group known as ISIS. When their departure was discovered, their desperate families tried everything they could think of to stop them, reaching out to the media, some even traveling to Turkey to try to find the girls before they entered Syria. But they didn't succeed, and the girls disappeared into new lives in the Islamic State, until years later when one of them re-emerged, Shamima Begum. Now, at 23, she's being held in an ISIS detention camp in Syria. Her U.K. citizenship has been revoked. And she says she wants to go back home to London. I'm not a bad person. I'm not this person that they think I am being perceived as in the media. You know, I'm just so much more than ISIS and I'm so much more than everything that I've been through. 
Her remarkable story and the story wrapped around it are the subject of a new BBC podcast called I'm Not a Monster, the Shamima Begum story. It's by investigative journalist Josh Baker, who has had remarkable access to Begum, meeting with her at the detention camp where she's being held, interviewing her for hours. But he doesn't just have her take on events. He fact-checks and retraces her journey from London to Syria. When we spoke, Baker told me how he first learned about Begum's story back in 2015. I was in a place called East London Mosque making a documentary about one of the largest Muslim communities in Europe. And while I was there making this documentary, I was filming one day and it became clear that three girls had disappeared from the community. And those three girls turned out to be Shamima Begum, Khadiza Sultana and Amira Abbas. Now, the mosque became sort of like this focal point for authorities, for uh, the families of the girls, and indeed for the media. And it sort of transitioned from being this extraordinary, you know, a story of potential hope to stop the girls reaching uh, IS-controlled Syria. Now, at that point, I sort of followed the family for a little while and then forgot about it until seven years later when I was in Syria doing some other work and I got a chance to sit down with Shamima Begum and at that point it became clear that she wanted to give me what she says is her full account of everything that has happened over the last almost eight years now. Let's just start with a basic question that that some people might have which is why do we want to hear from her? I mean there are those who think you know she obviously she wasn't an adult but she was old enough to have some common sense, let's say, and she made this decision and it didn't turn out the way she would have liked. So why do you think we should hear from her? We're doing this at this moment because Shamima Begum's lawyers are fighting for her to come back to the UK. They say that the government didn't consider her age properly or that she was a victim of grooming before they took her citizenship. Now, we're in this unique position where the courts of this country, the authorities haven't been able to get the accounts that we have. Now, as a team of investigative journalists, we're sort of picking that apart to find out, you know, what really did happen here? Because so much has been said about Shamima Begum, but very little is really known about what happened. You know, I have to say, it, it is fascinating. I mean, if if you haven't already made your mind up, and I recognize that some people have, that it is, it's just very interesting. I mean, and it's immersive and it's vast. I mean, you, you go from London to Turkey to Syria. As we said, you kind of retrace her steps. But we also do hear from her. I just want to play a short clip of an exchange that the two of you had. Here it is. But do you understand why society has so much anger towards you? Yes, I do understand. But it's, I don't think it's actually towards me. I think it's towards ISIS. But when they think of ISIS, they think of me because I've been put on the media so much. But they only did that because you chose to go to ISIS. But what was there to obsess over? We went to ISIS, that was it. It was over. It was over and done with. What more is there to say? Like, they just wanted to continue the story because it was a story. It was the big story. But you do accept that you did join a terrorist group? Yes. (laughs) I did. You raise some important points here. I mean, she was 15, and it's interesting, you know, we don't seem to have settled on how much, as a society, I mean, I'm thinking in, you know, countries like the UK, like the United States, where systems of law do make distinctions between adults, people who have reached the age of majority and people who have not. She's she's certainly an adult now. Do you mind if I ask, do you think she 
has remorse for what she did or what she has done? Or do you think she just has remorse for how it's turned out? I think so. It's a really good question. I think uh, when you talk with Shamima Begum, you have to kind of navigate, if you will, three personalities. There is a personality of a 15-year-old girl who's quite naive. Then there is the personality of a girl who had her formative years inside a terrorist state. And with that comes quite a single-mindedness and a bluntness to her. And then there's the girl that spent the last four years, or the woman, I should say, that spent the last four years in a detention camp, basically reflecting upon the decisions that she made and the things that she was part of. I think at times Shamima Begum genuinely does show remorse and contrition. And then at other times, I think she's still trying to really grasp what she was part of. And at the end of the day, we have to remember she joined a group that committed genocide, uh, committed atrocities around the world. And her membership of that group gives her some responsibility. And so I think she's still wrestling with that part of it. Can I ask about her family? I mean, her family made it clear that they didn't agree with this. I mean, there were some really heartfelt and emotional interviews with them where they were just desperate to what they thought were saving her, and she didn't want to be saved. I mean, there's this one kind of chilling exchange where you, you know, ask about, you know, her mother calling, and she didn't say anything. Her mother was sobbing, and she kind of took it as uh, her trying to guilt trip her into coming back, which... No, no. <laughs> I mean, you, you're completely right, and and that sort of touches upon what I said earlier. The the, the Shamima you're seeing there, that is the Shamima Begum of the Caliphate, and and I think you know it shows a bit of a harsh logic there. It is also you know I I really feel for this family because they have been put through so much. I mean, Shamima Begum left her mother at a bus stop and didn't give her a hug goodbye. Her mother hasn't seen her for eight years, so. This family have not only suffered because of the actions of their daughters, but to be fair to them, you know, they have had an awful time in the media as well. It is a, it is a story that has had a lot of attention, and I know it's been very hard on them. Why? Why? Because people blame them for her leaving? They think that they must have been part of her ideology in some way, or just the experience of, from their perspective, losing a child and then losing a child to something so awful. I mean, is it do you have do you have any sense of where they are now? Yeah, I think it's both of those things and more. I think, you know, you as you say, you have the difficulty that comes with somebody, you know, essentially a loss, your child being at home one day and then not the next. But also in reference to the media points, there was an awful lot of attention on this story. So they couldn't even grieve or deal with it in private and they attempted to use the media, which was probably the right thing to do at the time as a way to launch an appeal. But what that did is it, it it made it the big story. So I think where they're at today is that they are they would probably uh, probably say that they don't want to be in the media light if they can avoid it, and they are desperate for their daughter to come home. Well, before we let you go, Josh, I mean, as I said, it's a it's a remarkable achievement. But at the heart of the podcast, as we've said, is a question: Is Shamima Begum a terrorist? Or is she a victim of grooming and trafficking? And do you mind if I ask, after spending some time reporting this, what do you think? I think uh, you'll have to listen and wait till episode 10. But as is the way with these things, the truth is never black and white. That's Josh Baker, an investigative journalist. You can stream his 10-part series, I'm Not a Monster, the Shamima Begum story, wherever you get your podcasts. Josh Baker, thanks so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you very much. 
And finally today, we know it's all about football today, it being Super Bowl Sunday and all. But we're going to talk basketball for a minute to hear about one of the icons of that sport, Bill Russell. During his 13-year NBA career, Russell led the Boston Celtics to 11 championships, two as a player coach. He was voted league MVP five times. And now Netflix is out with a new documentary. It's titled, appropriately enough, Bill Russell Legend. If it weren't for Bill Russell winning all them championships, would anybody be talking about the Boston Celtics? No. Are you kidding? It's no conversation. He was the greatest and most dominant winner we've ever seen in the history of basketball. That was award-winning director Sam Pollard. His new documentary, Bill Russell Legend, is streaming now on Netflix. Sam Pollard, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Michelle. I have to tell you, you've done so many things, produced and directed and edited award-winning feature films and documentaries. One of those that personally meant a lot to me was Four Little Girls about the 1963 Birmingham church bombings. I mean, you've, you've won so many accolades. Why this film and why now? One imagines you could do any number of subjects at this stage of your career. So why did you want to do this film and why now? Well, I was approached by uh, Ross Greenberg, who used to be the president of HBO Sports, about two years ago, to get involved with the film as a director. And uh, there was no hesitation on my part because I grew up in the 60s. I had seen Bill Russell play. I knew about the rivalry between him and Will Chamberlain. You know, I thought he was one of the greatest defensive centers who ever played the game. So it was like an easy yes for me to say I'd love to direct this film about Bill Russell. And, you know, for, for me as a filmmaker, it gave me an opportunity to dig into Bill Russell's life, which was much more complicated than most, most people know. And that he was not only a great player on the court, but he was a very important human and civil rights activist off the court, too. Do you kind of get the feeling that, in a way, his story was hiding in plain sight? It seems weird that there hasn't been this kind of full feature-length treatment until now, given the impact that he had. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because I think most people see him just as a, a great sports singer, a legend on the basketball court, and really didn't really dig into how complex his life was off the court. He was a man who grew up in Monroe, Louisiana, moved to Oakland with his family when he was a young, young man and in his pre-teens, and he learned basketball when he went to Oakland, and he became a major star at USF went on to win the Olympic gold medal in Australia, and then got drafted by the Celtics in 57. But we learned that, you know, he had a very interesting life and complicated life off the court. He was part of the March on Washington. He was at the 67 Summit in Cleveland with Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali. He dealt with Boston busing issues. So he was a a very, you know, well-rounded human being who believed that it was not only a responsibility as a player, but a responsibility as an African-American man. Which, again, it just seems interesting that we don't necessarily put him in the same breath as those other kind of prominent athlete activists, you know, like Muhammad Ali. Why do you think it is that that part of his life doesn't seem to have gotten the same kind of attention as other athlete activists, like the ones that you name, like Jim Brown, like people who, or even, gosh, uh, even Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's thankfully still with us. Why do you think that is? I don't think he was as vocal. I mean, he just did what he had to do, and he wasn't as vocal as Ali, as we all know. <clears throat> he wasn't as, as aggressive as Jim Brown could be, you know, when he was at his, his height as an actor and as an actress. So I think he wasn't just, he wasn't as vocal, and he didn't have as much exposure as they did. But I think this documentary will reset the clock on that and understand Bill from the other perspective, besides being 
phenomenal basketball legend. One of the things that I think people today don't realize is how much he had to put up with as a player. Like we certainly know when it comes to Jackie Robinson, you know, the abuse that was directed at him. And I think maybe it's because we are so used to seeing African-Americans as dominant in basketball. We don't remember a lot of the abuse that he had to put up with earlier in his career. And I'm just going to play a short clip about that. There was a full house in Keele Auditorium on that night in December 1956. The ball went up and Bob Pettit of the Hawks and I jumped for it. Coon, go back to Africa, you baboon. Watch out, Pettit, you'll get covered with chocolate. There was no doubt who the fans were yelling at. I was the only Negro athlete on either team. You know, I think people remember that sort of ugly era in Boston's history, which went on for quite some time, like the racial tension in Boston. I mean, that famous photograph of the African-American lawyer um, about to be like uh, speared with a flag right downtown at city government center. Exactly. So how did he deal with it? Like how how did he deal with all of that? Well, here, first of all, he, he was a very angry guy about that. I mean, he had a major chip on his shoulder. You know, he didn't love the Boston fans. He didn't love Boston. I mean, he had a lot of issues when he lived in Reading, Massachusetts. You know, one night they came back to his house and somebody had broken in and defecated on the family bed and made, you know, little things on the wall and on his garage door. But the thing that Bill Russell was always focused on as a player was being a member of the Celtic family. He could care less, you know, about being someone that the Boston fans would love, because they didn't love him. I mean, we all know that when he became a Celtic, he became the linchpin that began this dynasty of the Boston Celtics. So before we let you go, what's important to you? You know, what is there something in particular you're hoping people will draw from this film? Yeah, I hope that they walk away understanding that he was not only a great basketball player, but he was also a great man and a complicated man. And there were things that you could take away and say that he was really wonderful and special. There were things you might take away from Bill Russell and say, wow, you know, for him to have hold this grudge against Will Chamber for so many years. You know, I want you to understand, like a lot of these films that I've done, the complexity of the human being we're playing up on the screen. That was award-winning director Sam Pollard. His new documentary, Bill Russell Legend, is streaming now on Netflix. Sam Pollard, thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure, Michelle. Have a good day.